wants to bring to our attention that we are at war. We are God's people and that there is a war swirling about us. And so, so the main idea of the section is this. Uh, the church must depend on the Lord's strength to stand and to fight against her foes. And I want to encourage you, in light of that, to, to be strong in the Lord, that is, depend on Jesus. Stand and fight. Your outline is there before you. You've got three things to walk away with this morning. The church is at war. Uh, the enemy has a strategy, and the church is equipped to stand and fight. With those things in mind, let's pray and get into the text together this morning. Father, we need you this morning as much as we ever have. We need your strength to stand firm, to stand fast, to endure the present hardships of this world, and even to enjoy the present blessings. Lord, we come before you this morning as a people who are standing on the promises of God, dependent on your grace to us. We are bold enough to ask for more grace and more mercy. We thank you that your mercies are new each morning and that you delight to give good things to your children. And so we ask this morning that you would give us your word once more. Pray that you would help us to hear it faithfully and that it would be preached faithfully. We ask that Christ would be honored in and among us. Bring glory to yourself this morning, God. Meet us here in this place, in these moments, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's set the context a little bit first, quickly this time. Uh, Ephesians, we have split into two halves. Uh, the first half we have called, anybody? What? Doctrine, there we are. And the second half, chapters four through six, we've called devotion. So doctrine and devotion. The doctrine half, Paul wants us to know that we who believe in Christ have been adopted into the family of God. That we, all of us, every person who's ever lived, were once dead in our sins following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. We were his disciples. And yet God, because of the great love with which he loves us, has made us alive in Christ. So we were dead and we were brought to life. We're alive now and we have been adopted into the family of God. That's the doctrine. And the devotion, well, the second part of the book tells us not how to become Christians, but how to live now that we are Christians. That's the devotion piece. And so we've summed it up sort of this way. We've said, uh, we have been adopted into the family of God by the grace of Christ and now we are learning to live up to the family name. And in the family of God, we, we have a different sort of gait to the way we move. We walk in a distinguished way. Remember, walk is a Hebrew idiom for the way we live. And it's, it's the word walk, that verb, is scattered throughout the book. And so we learn that Christians are to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which we have been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit 
in the bond of peace. We are no longer to walk as the Gentiles walk, as the world walks, darkened in our understanding and the futility of our minds, but as those who have had our minds renewed by the Holy Spirit. We're to take off the old man, to put on the new man. We are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. We are to walk as children of the light. We are to walk wisely. That's the last occurrence of the verb. It comes in verse 15 of chapter 5. To walk wisely, not as unwise, but as wise. And this command to walk wise hangs like a banner over the conclusion of the book. And Paul has expounded on it a little bit. He said to to walk wisely means being full of the Holy Spirit and pursuing that fullness of the Spirit by singing to one another and to God, by giving thanks to God always, by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And we walked through what that serving of one another looks like the past, I don't know, many weeks. Uh, and, And we also see that to be wise is to know what the will of the Lord is, to study His Word, to submit to His Word. Now the next Next kind of piece in the puzzle here, to walk wise, is to be strong in the Lord. That's where we're at now. Let's look at verse 10. Verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle, Uh, some of you probably have struggle in your translation there, Uh, wrestle is the literal word, and I imagine Paul employed it just to demonstrate the, the sort of closeness and intimacy of this battle that we are in. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil. In the heavenly places. This is not the first time the book of Ephesians has uh, taken our minds and, and set them on all manner of spiritual things. You remember, we've already alluded to it earlier back in chapter 2. We were told, I'll read it this time, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following Satan, the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We, reality has a spiritual animation behind it. And we were once the devil's disciples until God stepped in. And the devil has a goal. Satan seeks to destroy, not just humanity in general, though he delights to do that, but the people of God in particular. Thus Paul's exhortation. Ephesians 4.1 Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why this call to protect unity? Because our unity is doubly threatened, right? 
The unity of the church, of God's work in bringing a people to himself, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, all manner of colors. God is displaying his glory in what he's building in the church as he saves people to himself, and Satan hates that. And so he aims to destroy the unity of the church, and that our unity is threatened both by our sin, it's threatened within, and there is a threat from without. It is threatened by the work of spiritual forces of evil. Thus Paul's instruction in verse 27 of chapter 4, give no opportunity to the devil. Quite literally, you translate it, give no place to the devil among you. When we were in that section, we said, we want to make sure that we don't give Satan a seat in our congregation. Because his aim is to divide us one against another. To have us speak harshly to one another. To act in a way that's unloving towards one another. To not give one another the benefit of the doubt. Satan aims to destroy us. We're starting with verse 12, bringing out the fact that the church is at war. Because it is the foundation, the reason, the ground for the directives in verses 10 and 11. We must recognize that there is a spiritual war swirling about us right now. Christians don't think this way anymore. We're very, very naturalist, functional atheists, most of us. It's why uh, we exhaust every other option when things go wrong. And then finally we say, well, all we can do now is pray. As if prayer is the last resort rather than the first resort. As if prayer is a, a weaker weapon than our own devices. Friends, we are at war and the weapons, as we will see next week, with which we are equipped are spiritual in nature. When Aragorn comes to the king of Rohan, to explain to him the necessity of joining the fight against Sauron and Soromon. If you haven't read Lord of the Rings, I'm sorry. Rohan's king hesitates. He doesn't want to drag his people into a war that he does not believe that they can win. And so he, he famously says to Aragorn, in response to Aragorn imploring him to join the war, he says, I will not risk open war. And Aragorn responds, Open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. Christian, open war is upon you, whether you would risk it or not. Whether you acknowledge it or not. There is a spiritual war going on around you, and the goal of the spiritual forces of evil, the goal of the devil in that war is to destroy your faith, to tear apart the good work of God in the church. See, Satan's, Satan's goal is not just the suffering itself. His goal is to use the suffering and the wickedness that he brings into your life to cause you to abandon your faith in the goodness of God and to turn on one another. You see it in the life of Job. Job has no idea of the spiritual realities undergirding 
His reality. He is a faithful man. He's faithful to God. And all of a sudden, in one day, he experiences tragedy after tragedy. And the goal of Satan is captured in the words of Job's wife when she says, eventually, curse God and die. That's the goal of Satan. Yet Job did not relent. He said, shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? We saw from our scripture reading this morning, blessed be the name of the Lord. He he gives and takes away. God is God. My faith will not be destroyed was the response of Job. And that needs to be our response when we lose loved ones, when we are enduring sickness, when we can't make sense of these things that are happening in our lives. Our response needs to not be, God, I'm so mad at you. How could you let this happen? But to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. His plan is good. I'm grateful for what He's given me, and even in the midst of this suffering, I know that He is ultimately using it for His glory and my ultimate good. Friends, we need to acknowledge what we know from reading the book of Job, from reading our Bibles, from reading the book of Ephesians, that open war is upon us. That indeed, we have a great spiritual enemy, a powerful foe. And that indeed, I'm not saying everything, but things that come to us, storms and sickness, are animated sometimes by evil and by the scheming of the evil one. Our war is not merely against flesh and blood, but primarily against that which is not flesh and blood. Against those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I do think that's important to to point out. I think it's easy to read this text and almost go, well, Paul doesn't have a category for real physical evil. And we know by common experience that there are physical manifestations of evil. I found uh, Timothy Keller's comments helpful. Uh, He says, when Paul says we wrestle against, not against flesh and blood, he doesn't mean we don't wrestle with any flesh and blood version of evil. He's not saying evil doesn't take on flesh and blood form. Paul has struggled with people who imprisoned him, who flogged him, and who stoned him. So he certainly opposed flesh and blood evil. What Paul is saying is we wrestle not only with flesh and blood evil, When evil takes flesh and blood form, war, cruelty, violence, greed, strife, racism, crime, poverty, Paul is saying they they participate in something that's above and beyond that is more than merely human and natural. The flesh and blood behind it is something that is not flesh and blood. We are at war with an unseen foe who is extraordinarily crafty and powerful. Therefore, we must fight. Now, some of you are going, wait wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought that we had won this battle. Right? I thought that Jesus has defeated evil. Isn't that the message of Christianity? So, So why then do we need to fight? 
Well, yes, of course, Jesus has secured our victory. He has defeated death, and we will share in that victory one day soon when He returns to judge evil and to redeem all things. But also, it's still necessary to fight. I mean, Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus is ruling and reigning above every spiritual being, right? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come, Jesus is ruling over. We also see in verse 10 of chapter 3 that it's God's plan to, through the church, make His manifold wisdom known. And if you notice in verse 10, making His wisdom known not to other human beings, but to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. As a part of God's design in history is to make His wisdom known to display His glory in every realm, not just our realm. And He designs to do that through the church. So the church is like a victory parade before a defeated and yet not destroyed enemy. The victory has been secured, but it's not yet been finalized. Like when a football team is up, you know, 10 scores with 10 seconds left and they get in the victory formation. There's still a few more snaps that have to occur. Or, or maybe we'll use this illustration. Um, in World War II, by the time the Russians were, were pushing on the eastern borders of Germany, uh, the Allies had already cleaned out North Africa, landed in the boot of Italy, and they were gently pushing up. Then, landing on the beaches of Normandy, within three days landing, 1.1 million troops and tons and tons of material. It was plain at that point that the war in Europe was over. I mean, the Germans didn't have the men anymore. Too many had died. They didn't have the energy. They didn't have physical resources. There was simply no way they were going to win the war. Did that mean that, history, that Hitler said, sorry, I goofed, my bad? Of course not. I mean, far from it. Some of the worst fighting of the war came next, right? The Battle of the Bulge was next. But likewise, the enemy has had his head crushed, his back pressed against the wall, and so now he rages against God's people all the more. We are at war. And the enemy is scheming against us. Well, you see that again in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, we'll talk more about what it means to put on the armor of God next week, uh, but this is the manner to put on the armor of God that we um, perform the action of verse 10. So we're to be strengthened in the Lord, and the manner that we do that in, how we are to do that, is by putting on this metaphorical armor of God. And I think it's important that we realize that it is a metaphor, and he's communicating a truth he's already communicated in Ephesians, and that he also communicates in Romans 13. Right, earlier in Ephesians, Paul says, take off the old man, put on the new man. In Romans, he says, put on the armor of light and put on Christ. And so what he's calling us to do is to appropriate 
the reality of our relationship with Jesus. He's saying what you need to know in this spiritual battle primarily is this. You have been united to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is from Him that you draw your strength. This is how you will be able to stand against the schemes of the evil one. And he's going to map that out a little bit and give more explanation to it, and, and we'll come to that in due course. But I want you to see the purpose of being strong in the Lord, the purpose of putting on the armor of God, is so that, there in verse 11, we will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Our enemy has a strategy to destroy and disrupt our faith. It's really important that we realize he has a strategy. And one of his favorite things to do, well, Thomas Brooks says it well, Satan loves to sail with the wind. That is, he knows your virtues and your vices. It's a little portfolio on all of us. And he tempts us to return to the old self and our old ways. That's pretty clear. Although I do think he has two favorite plays that he likes to run on us. Satan has two favorite schemes that he likes to run on each and every Christian. Do you all remember the X-Files? Right, some of you, the tagline, the truth is out there. It's been rebooted a couple times from the 90s. You had two uh, detectives, I guess, FBI agents. I don't really know what part of the government they worked for. Uh, but, but they were charged with um, getting these paranormal cold cases and figuring out, well, what, what, what actually happened here. We have two main characters, uh, Mulder and Scully. And Scully, uh, she is a skeptic at heart. And so for every case, uh, she figures out, or tries to figure out, a natural and materialistic explanation for what has happened. And a foil for her is Mulder. Uh, Mulder is a, a true believer at heart. He always, always believes that there's some paranormal activity under everything that happens. And so they evaluate cases throughout the show. You're going, how does this tie into Satan's schemes here? We're getting there, getting there. So the first play that Satan likes to run, uh, we're going to call Scully, right? There's your, there's your connection. You guys are like, what? Okay. Scully, when Satan runs Scully, uh, what he does is he tells us to look this way while he goes that way. See, what he does is he makes us believe that he doesn't exist. Or that if he does exist, he's incompetent, not a true threat, not, not to be worried about at all. Because after all, we're, we're modern people. All of our problems can be explained scientifically. Well, Ligon Duncan says here, because if there is anything that evangelical Christianity in America at the dawn of the 21st century is prone to, it's thinking that our struggle is against flesh and blood. We've got a method or a program. We've got some sort of prefab human answer to every problem that we face. There's a pill. There's a program. There's a plan for everything. That's your problem? Problem A? Here's answer A. This is your struggle? Follow these four steps. Do these things. But whatever it is, we seem to have an answer for it. A solution that we can, well, we can carry out ourselves. 
we can, we can see how successful Scully has been when we think about the low priority of prayer in our lives, the low priority of God's Word in our lives, or even just how we have responded to all this devil talk this morning. Right? Some of us have gone, really? The devil? We're past that. I thought we were more respectable and impressive kind of people than, than all that. The devil's been very successful in this. And it's a, it's, you have to hand it to him, uh, running Scully is a wise thing to do. Because you, you can't, you don't defend against that which you don't believe in. When I was uh, sojourning in Florida for a summer in Daytona Beach, uh, I used to have a, a convertible for car people. It was a 99 Spider Eclipse. I was a cool kid for a little while. And I wasn't super, you guys are like, that's definitely not true anymore. Randy's back there going, he said YOLO instead of YOLO a few weeks ago. But I was a cool kid, and I, I didn't know, like, a sunshine state, right? It's sunny all the time, it's beautiful. I wasn't familiar with the um, everyday rain for, like, at least 15 minutes pattern. And so in my mind, uh, I didn't believe it ever rained there. And so I was like, top down all summer, baby. You know, this is going to be fantastic. And uh, I w- went to a particular meeting that I had, and I left the the top down, of course, because it's beautiful outside. And I went into my meeting, and I came back outside, and it was beautiful once again. And I sat down in my car, <sighs> seats soaking wet, cup holders filled with water, and I was like, "What is this shenanigans?" But it it had rained. Here, here's the point, right? You don't defend against what you don't believe in. It'd be similar if I told you uh, tonight. Tonight, Jerry, I'm coming to your house and I am going to steal everything of any value there. Coming. Now, if you believe me, maybe you're going to lock the doors, call the police. You know, you're going to be ready to defend against it. If you don't believe me, which hopefully you don't, uh, you're not doing any of those things. Likewise, this is the devil's trick. He makes you not believe in him and then you are willing to ignore him and he takes all of your goods in the night. He fills your cup holders with water and makes damp your seats. Brothers and sisters, do not fall for scully. The devil is real. Open war is upon you whether you acknowledge it or not. So if, if scully is how the devil tricks us into believing he's not real at all, well then Mulder, well, that's the opposite play. It's how the devil takes a magnifying glass and puts it before our eyes so that all we can see is him. Right? If I sin, devil made me do it. If something bad happens, well this was clearly uh, the devil's work. We become so concerned and focused on the spiritual forces of darkness that we can see nothing else and that includes the lordship of Jesus Christ. We get to the point where we're even superstitious. Instead of a lucky rabbit's foot hanging on our rearview mirror or in our pockets, we have a cross. We begin to think, oh no, I I missed my quiet time today and therefore God is going to punish me. I got a flat tire on my way to work after I missed my, my quiet time and therefore the flat tire is a result of me not reading God's word. God's mad at me. This is a lie. Do you not want to fall for molder? Church, 
The devil is a powerful foe, but he is a foe who has his head crushed. He tries to bring suffering into our lives that he might destroy our faith. But if you noticed from our scripture reading this morning in the book of Job, the devil is still God's devil. He cannot bring anything into your life that God has not ordained, that God has not purposed to use for your good and his glory. So maybe you feel like you are at a place in life where you are as Job in dust and ashes, scraping at your skin with broken pottery. You know, I don't know what is going on, and this is terrible, but I will not curse God. God is good. Do not fall for molder. Guard against the schemes of the evil one. Our enemy has a strategy. And it's one we must guard against. And it's one that Christ has equipped us to stand and fight. We are able to stand and fight successfully against those spiritual forces of darkness. We come to verse 10 finally. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This is not a call for us to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps or to make ourselves stronger, to draw on our own strength. It's quite the opposite. It's harder to see in English, but the verb in Greek is passive. What that means is that it happens to us. So, so we might better understand it. Be strengthened by God. Be made strong. You see, we're not, not being told to, to do it ourselves, though participation is required on our part. We're being called to draw on the strength that is given to us by God. I think this is really important because spiritual power does not come from techniques, invocations, or any ritual. Right? Spiritual power comes through relationship, through our union with Jesus. But God's strength is received not through ritual, but, from, but through relationship. His power comes to us through His Holy Spirit. It's not about ritual, but our relationship with God. We don't appropriate God's power by wearing crystals around our neck, or by doing X, Y, and Z, we draw on God's power by depending on Christ, by standing in the good news of the gospel, by relying on the Holy Spirit, by submitting ourselves to God's Word, by coming to the Lord in prayer, over and over again. Friends, the way that we stand and fight against the schemes of the evil one is by following our good and mighty King. Jesus is our King. He has won the battle. Jesus is our King, and our King leads from the front. He's in the vanguard. He fights for us and with us. And we see this wonderful truth in His life. Jesus, when tempted by the devil in the wilderness to 
take a crown without the cross draws upon the same resources that are available to us. He quotes God's Word. He trusts God's Spirit. He depends on the Lord. And he says, I will not take a crown without a cross. I will go to the cross and then I will wear the crown so that I might save a people unto myself. Jesus obeys God. And he goes to the cross, which is a a seeming victory for our enemy. And yet, once again, God outflanked the devil. He is sovereign. He planned for the cross. He planned for that which seemed to be a great defeat. The author of life killed. Death victorious. And he turned it into the most scandalous and extraordinary victory that has ever been won. As God punished in Jesus Christ the sins of every man, woman, and child who would trust in Him. Jesus, in dying beneath the wrath of God on the cross, according to the will of God, and by the work of Satan who entered Judas and betrayed Him there. Jesus dying seemed like a loss. Oh, but it was gain. For in it, Jesus purchased salvation, forgiveness of sins for us, for all who repent and believe. Non-Christian, if you are here, you can have your sins forgiven. Believe. No longer be enslaved to the devil. Come to the Master whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And best of all, Jesus, our King who we follow into battle, He didn't stay dead. That's the completion of the crucifixion. It's the resurrection! Jesus won for us forgiveness of sins on the cross and He secured for us our resurrection with His resurrection. When Jesus stepped foot out of the grave, he pressed it firmly down on the skull of that ancient serpent. He has won the victory. He has guaranteed to all who believe salvation, both in this life and in the life to come. His words are true. The one who trusts in me, though though he die, so shall he live. We experience resurrection life spiritually now and we will experience it in its fullness then when Christ returns to snuff out evil once and for all and to redeem all things. And so we we take up our armor of God depending on the strength that is ours in Christ and we stand and we fight. Because we stand forgiven. Love the lyrics of the song we're about to sing. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed crowning your blood-stained brow. Now the daylight flees. Now the ground beneath quakes 
as its maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two. Dead are raised to life. Finished. The victory cry. This the power of the cross. Son of God slain for us. What a love. What a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. And because we stand forgiven at the cross, we stand fast and firm against the schemes of the devil. Let's pray. Father, all we have is owed to you. You are the giver of every good gift. There is no shadow of change in you. Your love is constant. You love us the same on our best day as you do on our worst day. You own us. We are your slaves. We are your bride. We are your sons and daughters. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask that you would help us to draw on your strength that we might stand against the schemes of the devil. That we might stand firm in the evil days before us. That we might know that when we feel like we can't stand on the hardest days of our lives, that Jesus is there holding us. He holds us fast. He will not let us fall or falter. Oh, we praise you. You have saved us. And that the Lord Jesus will have none plucked out of his hand. We thank you that he doesn't cast out any who come to him. We thank you that we can call you our Father. And it is in the name of King Jesus that we pray. Amen.